0: Are Opportunity Zones being underutilized? And what's in store for the Opportunity Zone marketplace as we come out of the pandemic and head into the second half of 2021? Find out more next. Back in May, I hosted a live Opportunity Zones panel at the Adisa Spring Conference. What follows is the audio recording of this panel. Enjoy. Well, we made it. We made it to the last panel of the day. I think it's the best one. Opportunity Zones. Right, boys, what do you say? Should we fire this up or what? Let's do it. My name is Jimmy Atkinson. I'm the founder of the Opportunity Zones database at opportunitydb.com and the host of the Opportunity Zones podcast. I've had the privilege of having all three of the gentlemen sitting in front of you today as guests on my podcast. Thank you very much back there. Appreciate that. Just a quick intro to Opportunity Zones. For those of you who don't know, I'm going to go through a very brief intro to what the tax incentive is. I think it's the greatest tax incentive ever created, possibly. And it starts with a capital gain. So it could be a capital gain from stock, from real estate, from crypto, from art, from virtually anything, basically. And you get three huge tax benefits One is the deferral period. You get to defer recognition of the capital gain until the end of 2026. Think of it as an interest-free loan from Uncle Sam. Two, you get a reduction in the amount of gain that you recognize when you do have the recognition event at the end of 2026 by up to 10% that benefit is actually going away at the end of this year we'll talk a little bit more about that later but the third benefit is by far the largest one it's elimination of all capital gains within the opportunity zone investment so if you appreciate your asset from a million dollars to two million dollars your one million dollar capital gain gets wiped out tax-free so it's quite an incredible tax incentive program i think and just to give you an idea of the size of the asset class it's a new investment vehicle that was created at the end of 2017 as part of the tax cuts and jobs act a report was recently released by uc berkeley in cooperation with the joint committee on taxation and they discovered that approximately 25 billion dollars of investment was made in 2019 alone estimates as high as 75 billion dollars over the life of the program to date have been floated around so it's a very large asset class i think over $100 billion, possibly $200 billion will be raised when all is said and done. So I'd like to introduce my panelists here today now, they represent three distinct product types that are represented up here today. We have at the far end, Mr. Eric Hayden, he's founder of Urban Catalyst, and his product is ultra focused on real estate development in San Jose, which is one of the hottest areas in the country. In the middle here, we have Matt Ike. he's the executive vice president of U.S. Energy Development Corporation, and his Qualified Opportunity Fund offering is investing in the energy space. And last but not least, we have my friend, Greg Genovese, CEO of USG Realty Capital and the Investor's Choice OZ Fund, and he has a broad-based real estate development nationwide. So just to paint a picture of how we got to where we are today, as I mentioned, in 2017, the legislation was passed as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that created Opportunity Zones. The zones themselves, the place-based communities where these tax incentives apply, were finalized in 2018, and the first funds started rolling out then. In 2019, the IRS regulations were finalized, and then we're coming into 2020 real hot in this industry, and everything's coming along, and then everything shut down with COVID. So I'm going to turn to the panel now. Let's get this conversation rolling here. Why are OZs being underutilized today, do you think? Eric, I'll, I'll start with you at the far end there. We'll go right to left for the audience.
1: Well, sure. It started off with the lack of clarification in the program when it came out as a part of the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. When it came out, they said there were going to be three rounds of clarifications. The final round didn't come out until December of 2019. And before that, there was a lot of confusion associated with the program and investors saw confusion really equaling risk. Uh, Since then, we've seen a lot of investors start to understand the program. But then, of course, COVID. So you kind of got hit with uh, a timing
2: double whammy. So not to duplicate that on, I would say then you had Biden, which is great. But on on, on top of that, so you have this long period of time and this long delay. And and then I think you also have kind of a bifurcation of understanding of those who distribute it and those who buy it. So I, I actually know a lot of real estate developers who've utilized it. I know a lot of wealthy who've utilized it. There seems to be an intermediary mismatch between the style of the funds and the risk that many of the distributors might take, broker dealers and such not, versus the end users. So I think there's somewhat of a dislocation there in terms of the vested interests of all the parties that have delayed. So we always quote this, and this is sorry to be inappropriate. We call opportunity zones a lot like high school sex. A lot of people talking about it, nobody doing it. So, but it, it's funny because it is the single greatest tax reform I've ever seen. It's a super Roth. You're only limited by how much you have in capital gains to turn into tax-free accounts. It's insanity when you look at the nature of the law and the flexibility it affords, and it is way underutilized in all asset classes. The only thing I would echo,
3: first of all, let me echo what Eric and Matt said, and if I were to add anything at all, I think there's two other factors that we really need to look at. But Eric really hit it out of the park I mean, as far as really understanding. It comes down to understanding, but it also comes down to timing. So what I've seen in the industry, and you know, our group's been involved right from the start with our, our first program back in uh, 2019, there's two other factors that are really going on. One is everybody has been so hyper-focused in the Opportunity Zone world on the 15% reduction and then the 10% reduction. And so there's this feeling that this is the last year of the 10% reduction. So people are already kind of calling it in a little bit on what they believe the maximum benefits are. And so I think that's a little bit short-sighted. And so hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about that and why it should be utilized even past that date. And then the second really is that if you look at the majority of the producers in our world, in Addisa, the independent broker dealers, the RAs that are affiliated with BDs, the focus on real estate really has been on the 1031 exchange for all the right reasons. And so there's definitely some education that needs to happen on the side of the fence. The broker-dealers need to get their head around utilizing opportunity zones. And then, quite frankly, the last thing I always say whenever I'm speaking publicly is whenever there's a new tax initiative, I always say you need to worry a little bit because I always say, guarantee you, in three or four years, there's going to be an article in the LA Times about two guys in LA that ripped off a bunch of people in Palm Springs. And so trying to figure out who the players are and who the good, the bad, and the ugly are, who are using regulations and compliance good oversight, third-party oversight, I think is important. And quite frankly, kind of to Eric's point, I think it's taken the investors, it's taken the RAs, it's taken the BD channels a pretty good amount of time to understand who the players are. And I think you add it all up in with the timing issue, I think is really fostered underutilizing the asset class.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of headline risk with any new tax incentive program like this one. And I think we already saw some nasty headlines come out in the mainstream media the first couple of years of the program. That didn't do the industry any favors for sure. So we're here to discuss post-COVID opportunities on investing, as it says on the screens behind us. So let's do that for a moment. Now, we're getting into what I like to refer to as post-COVID. We're all here in person at a conference for the first time in 18 months. So And the market's starting to rebound. The economy's starting to rebound. So as we're starting to come out of COVID, what can investors expect in terms of post-COVID market conditions, specifically for Opportunity Zones?
2: You take it, Matt. Right. <laughs> uh, oh, <great>. So <laughs> I think there's one major, well, there's a bunch of hanging chads still out there yeah. that I think are, are critical. The one that you were mentioning that is extremely important is the in the importance that's put on the least important part of this tax code, which is the deferral. Right, and and we get it because investor incentive is they want that immediacy, right? We all understand human behavior and the immediacy of deferring that capital gain, and with the fear, especially under this administration, that you're going to have a significant rise in capital gain rates, I think there's a pause, right? If everyone's putting the importance on, hey, we're going to have this capital gain, and now I'm going to defer it potentially at a much higher rate, there's that big concern. I, I would call that a hanging chad amongst many other hanging chads. It's probably the single biggest issue. Again, I think people are failing to recognize that the 10-year has a lot more value than the, the deferral, but it's understood. So I would say that's one big hurdle that's coming out of COVID right now. There is a hurdle in Washington in that I would say the party that's in power right now has not been a fan of how Opportunity Zone laws have worked to date. So I've had several discussions with several committee members in both the House and Senate and I will tell you that there's been a frustration on the left side to where the capital has been spent. So that is something that we often be cognizant of. That they wanted a lot more urban centers that are that is more significantly in gentrification. So I think we found a lot of diamonds in the rough that people have taken advantage of that were post that that are in the 2010 census track but happen to be good investments already. So there is a bit of a frustration on a certain side of the aisle that I think we should all be cognizant of going forward because uh, it might cause some reform in the post-COVID. And there's so many other things I can say, but I want you guys to be able to talk. So <laughs>
0: yeah, I'm, and I want to focus on the Biden administration I, and specifically what we think his administration may do and what those changes may have an impact on investors in, in a minute. But Greg, let's yeah, was, you so I, COVID you. I couldn't agree
3: with Matt anymore. You really hit it down the fairway. What I would say is this is just my own thinking. I think there were different COVIDs when it comes to real estate. If you look at when the opportunities Zone Initiative first hit, hit the space, we were already at the top of the real estate market, we were were at the top of the stock market, we had bone-crushing government debt, we had bone-crushing student debt, we had the lowest interest rates in history, we had the top of the real estate market, lowest cap rates, and for those in the audience that know this, we had an inverted yield curve twice during 2019, which really signals the next recession, so we were kind of looking at it from a standpoint of, we need to recession-proof, or recession-resilient, these. Performance, not the asset class, but the, the performance, And then COVID hit. So I think there was pre-COVID. Then I think there was COVID and nobody knew what to do. And the lenders were pulling back and there was all this stuff. And then there was the valley of COVID. And then I think there's post-COVID where we are today. And a lot of things really came to light. And I think a lot of it was looking at the potential conflicts of interest between developer and asset managers sort of came to light. But the silver lining, in my opinion, is that it's given the real estate markets an extended runway. We felt that we were in a late stable period in the real estate markets in 2018 and 2019. And I think COVID has actually given sort of a reset button. We're kind of back to 2018 from a pricing standpoint, and it's given us a little bit more of a runway. So I think that's a big advantage. But you couple that with people feeling that the runway is running out, and that could cause a bit of an issue. But I hope my colleagues here also keep echoing what Matt had said before, which is a lot of the marketplace is too focused on these reductions in capital gains tax over the long term period and how long you can actually hold on to that investment. It's basically a five-year tax-free loan from the government for the next five years. And you get the ability to go into one, two, let's say these three programs here deferred 100% of those capital gains tax, get the returns that that get to compound and compile over those five years, to me, that is way more important and way more valuable than the fact that in 2026, you get a 10% reduction. And kind of segueing into the Biden side, I think we all probably agree with what the Biden administration is looking to do. Isn't necessarily all that bad from a reporting standpoint, and that is third-party reviews, social impact studies. Where is the investment? How creative is it going to be for the local economy? Public-private partnership with
2: the local community—I'm totally for that. Well, yeah, let's, let's talk yeah, about outside that. of cap gains. Everything else is relatively positive. Yeah, right. Yeah, great. For op- zones. I agree.
0: And let's talk more about Biden in a minute. But I want to turn to Eric. Again, here. What, what's your take on the, the post COVID market environment? What can investors expect, particularly in opportunity zones? And maybe you could think about San Jose in particular if you want to.
1: What I can really say is I'm really happy this is a post COVID opportunity zone investing uh, panel and not a mid COVID opportunity zone investing panel because I'm really just happy it's, it's coming to an end and it's really great for investors. And obviously, the benefits are going down slightly in the program 10% to 0%. You only get to defer until 2026 a lot of folks forget that the third benefit is really the largest benefit, and that is tax-free profits after 10 years. And then for investors, most Opportunity Zone funds are based around real estate. And here at Urban Catalyst, we're based around real estate. And what we found is a lot of what Greg said, that typically real estate and the economy, it runs in like seven to 10-year cycles. And when we were out in the market talking to investors prior to COVID happening, we got a lot of well, obviously we're 10 years into this run, and it's gonna to come to an end. What's gonna happen when we go into a recession? And now, when we talk to investors, it's, well, we went through the recession, and we're out of it now, so we have another 10 years of the market expanding, right? So, that has been a little bit of a positive, that we look. it looks like we have more runway. And then, another thing that's interesting, because our fund, in our first fund, we had some office properties, and our second fund, we have a large office property. and. Is everybody gonna work from home forever? How is COVID gonna impact office space? I think I'm so sick of answering that question, but the answer really is, it turns out it's not gonna have a whole lot of impact. Folks are going back into the offices and what we're seeing is that, especially in Silicon Valley, a lot of the tech employees understand that and our investors in general, uh, a significant portion are in Silicon Valley. They are in the tech world, they're investing capital gains in the sale of stock and they can understand and put their minds around Okay, office is coming back. A uh, fund that has an office product in it is going to be a successful fund. And you know, it's a very positive sign out there in the market. And then I won't go too into Biden and his plans yet because I know Jimmy has some more questions. But as far as the reporting requirements, personally, that's something I want to see. I like that because I want to make sure our government is doing the right thing with all of its tax incentivized programs. And we've done some internal studies about some of the positive impacts that we have in downtown San Jose. And pretty significant so we once they have a framework it's like we get to go out and brag which is going to be kind of fun
2: jimmy you mind if i think specific to our industry in the energy space there's one i'd say difference in the post-covid energy industry i'll just kind of make a macro statement we look at this as there's been a large movement and change inside the e&p space over the last 10 years and it comes from every possible force you've had a bad 10-year run of equity returns and even significant debt risk and default at this point in time because of the the price volatility that's that's faced the energy space. You've seen Wall Street force major companies to operate within their own cash flow, which is just a massive sea change for us. Post-COVID, to me, the most unique thing is the overall ESG movement laid on top of that has really sucked away the majority of capital that's been in our space for 20 years. And when there's a void of capital, the investment opportunities have just dynamically changed in the last six months up and down the value chain we have seen opportunities that we haven't seen in 25 years we review about a 700 deals a year and normally less than two percent make it through our irr and roi analysis that we want over 90 percent are hitting right now there's just so much deal flow and no capital to fund it i'm not sure it's not that extreme but i'm sure office space has some benefits that are we are seeing something that is just unprecedented and i think because of the overall esg movement we have a much longer runway in our space where there's still going to be a significant lack of capital in traditional e because of that fear of e and And if you go back to the last seminar, we're not really worried about it because it still takes more oil to make an EV vehicle than it does a traditional. So we're not really concerned about any of the economics when you run down the long-term chain. So.
1: And, 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 Jimmy, I thought of one more thing while Matt was talking. One of the things that we've seen in the space is that investors that had a capital gains event that was the sale of stock man, there's a lot of day traders that have made a lot of money since March of 2020. <laughs> and that is short-term capital gains. The opportunities Zone program benefits them more than regular, uh, ordinary capital gains. So a lot of significant, I call it a significant increase in investment from day traders over the last year.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, let's turn now to the topic of a lot of conversation that I've had in my inbox, at least. I get emails from concerned people all the time asking me, okay, Biden got elected, Are OZs in danger? Is he going to do away with OZs? What's going to happen with OZs? I have to talk them down a little bit, calm them down. But I'll pose the question to you, gentlemen. I'll start with you, Greg. What is Biden proposing exactly?
3: And are OZs in danger? Or do they stand to benefit potentially? Interesting question because, and I'd be interested to hear what Matt has to say because he he sounds like you're pretty close to some of the government issues. And we've reached out and we've talked to, this is more some of the roundtables that I belong to, for opportunity zones. And before the switch, these roundtables actually provided comment and guidance to President Trump's Opportunity Zone Council. And the one thing that we've noticed is the information flow isn't quite as transparent as it was before. So I, anything I say right now, it's just a really educated guess. I can't say this is what everybody's been wanting to But what we're hearing, and I don't know if you've seen this yourself, Matt, but what we're hearing is the idea of an opportunity zone, is not something that the Biden administration wants to get rid of. In fact, for the members of the audience, hopefully, this was something that actually the Obama administration wanted to bring out in the 2012 tax act, but crowdfunding took precedent at that time. And so this is really something that was generated from the left side of the aisle. Which then Trump took and put into the 2017 Tax Act, and so unfortunately, I don't know if anybody's been reading the news or seeing the news, but there's a lot of there's a lot of partisan bickering going on in the last couple of years.
2: Why? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, it's just it's a rumor
3: that I've heard, and and so trying to understand, you know, figure out the wheat from the chaff here is really hard. So the idea of Opportunity Zones going away isn't really the issue. It's how does it look. So when Opportunity Zones hit, all of a sudden the New York Times and a lot of these publications were out there, this is a big tax break for the rich. There was all that, you know, taking position. The Trump program. Yeah, exactly. So it was just if it's theirs, then it's not ours kind of thing. Now that it's theirs, how does that fit? And it's really about making it fit so that it works. So the idea, this is our thesis is, It's not going away. In fact, we believe that the Biden administration is embracing them. However, there is going to be some changes as far as reporting and then how it fits into, we're looking at anywhere from 23.8 or 24% if you're it, up to 40% in capital gains tax now. So does opportunity zones benefit? And I think one of the things, this is a guess, one of the things that I believe the Biden administration is going to have to grapple with in a very adult fashion. And that is taking your idea, but also being pragmatic about it. Up till this point, there's been a lot of ideas, but not a lot of pragmatism. And so at the end of the day, when you look at the 1031 exchange possibly being eliminated and, look, and when they really dig in and see that it's the heart, you know, really the heart and soul of how real estate is traded and accretive to returns, if you look at giving people the opportunity to defer their capital gains tax, These are things that we believe the administration is going to embrace. The third thing we think the administration is going to embrace is the surety of what those taxes are going to be in 2026. So we're on the soapbox saying, you really should push out these benefits another year or two, because people like to call this a tax break for the investor. Really, it's a tax initiative for the government because the government's basically saying, how do we loosen up billions and billions of dollars of capital gains into taxes? How do we get people to do that? And if we get them to do that, we know on date certain that X amount is going to go into the treasury. So it really is something that is an incentive for people to sell um, high appreciated assets. And yeah, we're going to let you, that's terrible English. Yes, we're going to let you defer your gains and divert your capital gains, but at least we know we're going to get it. And that's sort of the deal that the Opportunity Zone industry and the investors have made with the government. And we believe that that's going to continue.
0: You mentioned billions of dollars of capital gains potentially getting unlocked. Now, yes. I think the, the number that was floated around at the beginning of this tax incentive back in 2017, 2018, so this number is a few years old, was – I think the estimate was there were over $6 trillion of unrealized capital gains – on the balance sheets of corporations and individuals. I'm just trying to be realistic, but yeah, of course you're trying to be realistic. <laughs> but that was the number that was floating. I'm not trying to pretend that we're going to yeah. unlock six trillion dollars and it's all going to flow into opportunity zones. But that's the uh, the scope of the investable amount of money that's floating around out there.
2: It is. Yeah. Uh, so I guess my two cents. Or 22 cents, depends on how long 22 cents on Biden. What's he proposing and are OGs in danger? I'll just keep it to the op zone for a quick second. I, I think there's very likely anything going to happen right now because no op zone conversation is on the table. So I don't think you're going to have it in the reconciliation bills. I don't think you're going to have it right now in anything that's going on. If something does happen, it's probably going to happen post-2021 into 2022. And really what they've been looking for is trying to tie it to more reporting and more functionality to get more what... Cory Booker wanted on it versus Tim Scott. So I think they want to do more towards, can we get more reporting And, they, and they've made comments such as if they did, they might extend the rolling five. So that this could go on where they have a five year window for people every year instead of just 2026, 20, but not unless they get the sustainability part of this or X or Y. So there's a, and they want to make sure that it's not going in. They may want to change some of the 2010 census tracts. That's really where they're most upset as a Democrat right now. They are furious that there's so many already pre-gentrified investments in Opportunity Zones that they're furious at that concept. They really wanted to go towards a lot more gentrification. So if they can get a little bit, they say they're willing to give more on the five-year rolling and other such things. We'll see. I don't think this is going to make the docket at all, from my perspective. And honestly, I think if they make changes in 1031s, obviously it's going to push a lot more money to Opportunity Zones. And it might already push a lot more money. I think people realize that In a 1031, if you're taking your recapture, your 1231 gain, you can pop that into an opportunity zone and you're still gonna be at a 25% rate because recapture isn't on the docket for change either. So just think about the math there, you know it's not gonna go up. So if you're using it as a partial amount to to use and create some opportunities, there's a whole bunch of planning mechanisms that are out there right now that people aren't really thinking about in terms of in the overall process of financial planning that don't have any of those risks that they think about with options, so. All right, well, a lot
1: of the stuff from the Biden administration, the information that I get is from the national working group that advises the Treasury the IRS on a lot of the ongoing changes. My partner, Sean, is on that in that working group. And the Biden administration reached out to the working group towards the end of last year and said, very similar to what Matt and Greg said, that overall, they liked the plan. They weren't like super thrilled about it, but they didn't plan to make a lot of changes. They wanted to see more reporting requirements. And it's hard to do a framework of reporting requirements for Opportunity Zone funds because they're so diverse. Matt's fund versus Greg's fund versus my fund, all really different types of things, even though we're all Opportunity Zone funds. So it's how do you scale that? How do you judge that? And I think that's been one of the big problems of why we haven't seen the reporting requirements come out yet. And by the way, Matt, when we say, we we don't say the word gentrification in the development space, we say revitalization. Sorry. I apologize. (laughs) We've seen stuff at the national level get passed around committee that has never made it out of committee. Things like getting rid of certain opportunity zone areas, certain census tracts in areas that are better off, which in downtown San Jose, we have four opportunity zones. And they have slated two of those as being too good to be in the program, which doesn't make any sense to me because all of downtown San Jose really requires that type of revitalization. And the census track data proves it. But we've also seen positive stuff like extending 2016 to 2018 and retroactively giving everybody that invested in 2020 the 15% benefit instead of the 10% benefit. But none of this has happened. And like Matt, I don't think a lot of it's going to happen this year or next year. We're just going to continue to roll along. If Trump had been reelected, he was a huge fan of the Opportunity Zone program. I think we would have seen an extension or that rolling five-year period because of his sort of thoughts about the program. I don't see that coming out of the Biden administration, but we'll see. It is a very bipartisan program. And perhaps the left will embrace it more.
0: Good thoughts there. We've touched upon the 15% benefit or the 15% basis step-up benefit, which essentially can reduce the amount of capital gain recognition in 2026, the 15% benefit went away at the end of 2019, so now we're down to a 10% basis step-up. That's going away at the end of this year. Is that a big deal? Or are people missing the boat here? What are your thoughts? Let's we, start can we Matt. answer with Matt? Matt, let start with you, yeah.
3: <laughs> we know what Matt thinks. Oh, we already know what Matt thinks. <laughs> you want to go, Greg? So Matt said something I thought was really intelligent remark on, let me just back up a little bit, what he said about the Biden administration and where things may go. I think that was really, it was practical. And I think if I had to put money on it, I think that's sort of the direction we're going in. But as far as the 10% reduction, I have this idea that I I talk about all the time called the power of 10. And the reason it's sort of a, a dynamic way of saying you shouldn't be so focused. And that is, whether they extend it or not, the most powerful tool in the Opportunity Zone initiative is the fact that you don't have to pay your taxes, not that you get a 10% reduction. The most powerful tool is, as I said before, really look at it as, at this point, an interest-free five-year loan from the U.S. government. The other side of that is, you can't, and something I picked up from this panel, you have Eric on the left, they're talking about opportunity zones in San Jose office, generally speaking, and then you have energy, and then we're nationally diversified into different things. But at the end of the day, it's about the project. It's about the asset. It's about the longevity of, you're talking about 10 years. Now, we live in I I don't know these gentlemen's ages, but, you know, I'm, well, I turned 57 yesterday. Thank you. Happy birthday. Um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> But, you I, that was like, yeah. <laughs> well, that's because my fiance in the audience. <laughs> so, in my working career, I've been through three major recessions. Most of the people in the independent BD channel, the RA channel, well, the, we've been through three major recessions. So the idea of an opportunity zone investment to me is we want to make sure, I hope I think everybody here thinks the same thing, we want to make sure that the investors, day one, are the same investors on the last day. So we need to look at these from the demographics of the area, demographics of the asset, how long, what is our runway from a capital preservation standpoint, and then you look at the 10% reduction. The fact that, let's say the return profile, I've never looked at it, but the Urban Catalyst return profile, U.S. Energy's return profile, Investor's Choice return profile, and let's say we've all come out equal from a risk standpoint. If you look at what the return will be on your money over the next five years, and then let's say it's a liquidity event near five and a half or six, how much has that return helped your out-of-pocket tax that you would have to pay? And in most cases, if the return's at around 8 9 or 10%, the return alone over the next five years will mitigate your out-of-pocket tax by up to 80%, 85%. So it's not that you have a 10% reduction that's going off the table, but the return that you get over the next five years can almost mitigate, depending on the returns, almost all of your tax liability. To me, that's the, the hidden power. That's in front of us, whether you get the 10% or not after
2: next year. Yeah. So that loan and then the compounding of the value. The interesting thing is, I think this is where I was mentioning the dislocation of interest distributors versus sponsors and then investors. Tax bill that's going to be owed in 2026 becomes a concern if I'm a broker dealer. There's a compliance issue around this. And I think that is part of the reason that there's been a, a somewhat slower adoption from the BD community than from the RIA or from direct investors. They seem to be a lot more have to do it than the BD world does, because they're very concerned with what happens in 2026 if the broker's not there and the client has a tax event. And what happens if they can't do a debt refinance distribution in 2026? So there's this hanging chat out there of how is the client gonna come up with the capital if it's all tied up, right? Inside the opportunity zone. It's another kind of issue there. So the 10%, first and foremost, it's great. It's a cherry on top. The other two benefits that you mentioned, and let's be honest, you're going to see a lot of fair market value discounts of private untraded securities in 2026 because you can use the lower of the fair market value or the original deferral. So everyone does have to remember that there's going to be a significant differential there in the market of how you post fair market values in 2026. Just saying generally, we, we get a lot of discounts in oil and gas, which work really well, but so do a lot of other asset classes. So you, you have those benefits kind of sitting out there, And I think that's where the interest becomes of, how is that tax bill? Are they gonna have a liquidity event through debt refinance? From our perspective, we have all these things called IDCs and depletion and depreciation. What happens is when you get a stepped up basis, because you have a zero offset basis when you come in. So when you get a stepped up basis in 2026, guess what becomes available? All those IDCs, depletion, depreciation. So any amount of income we flow through is tax-free to the investors. They don't have to pay taxes on the revenue during the first six years. So we, we do distribute during the first six years because we earn in revenue right away because we drill the wells and they produce in six months. So we're actually paying out 6% a year tax-free, technically tax-deferred. It's only tax-free if you hold it for all 10 years. And then any distribution we make in 2026 is also tax-free because you're all suspended uh, uh, intangible joint costs, depletion allowance, XYZ. So there's a whole bunch of things that people can do to plan around this, including one of the things that we do in our statements, and I'm assuming people, normally when you're coming into an opportunity zone, You have a liquidity event, because people forget this. When you have a $200,000 sale of your stock, is all of it from zero to 200, or do you have a basis? You have liquidity day one, because unlike a 1031, you're only moving your gain. Into You have, so in in the case of I have a $100,000 asset and a $100,000 gain, I get $100,000 liquidity day one. I have another $100,000 that's going in. People forget that in the opportunity zone, right? It's just part of the it's part of those reasons why in a 1031 exchange, people look at and say, if I have a really high basis, a $4 million basis and a $5 million sale, it's probably better to just put a million in an op zone than it is to put $5 million in a 1031, right? Like That would be a case where it just makes a ton of sense, where an op zone is a much better option for that client than because he has $4 million liquidity day one. Why are we worried about the taxes on a million dollars in 2026, right? Or if you only use the boot, it's still going to be 25 because recapture rate isn't changing. So if you only use that in an op zone, you're still going to pay 25. I think people put way too much attention on the 10%. They're not looking at the fair market value. They're just not doing proper planning.
1: You know, Matt, I, I totally agree with you. I think that the Opportunity Zone program has some significant benefits over 1031s, but I've stopped trying to convince the BDs and RAs that because
2: they're going to do 1031s all day long. I think they're different. I think they're more of a arrow and a quiver and they only work 30% of the time. But 30% of the time, they're a lot better.
1: That's right. There you go. I, I definitely agree. Now, back to Jimmy's you know original question, which was how important is 10%? It's not important at all. And I can say that with absolute certainty. Urban Catalyst, were a 506C. So we raised through the BDRIA channel, but we also raised direct from investors. Over the last two years, I think I've talked to somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,500 investors one-on-one. And I've heard their questions. I've heard their concerns and what they're interested in, what they're not. And really the benefit that they see as the biggest benefit is tax-free profits after 10 years. They think the tax-free profits are the end-all, be-all. Yeah, they get to defer for a while and it's okay. And your math is absolutely accurate. It is a huge benefit to be able to defer paying taxes, but they don't seem to really grasp that as much. But tax-free profits after 10 years, they can grasp that all day long. So we always tell them every single time what really matters is in any of the tax benefits associated with our program. But you heard about our program because of the tax benefits. But to Greg's point, it's about the project. and It's about the people that are doing the project, the company that's doing the project. Because if there's no profits after 10 years, what's the point of the whole program anyway?
2: So make it really simple. This is what I say to clients. Think about it this way. If you had a client who had Apple stock right now and he had the option to sell it and buy Apple stock inside of a tax-free account and all he had to do is hold it for 10 years, how many clients would they take all their returns and make them tax-free after 10 years? It's the simplest answer on the face of the earth: All of them, everyone. So if you like the underlying asset, which is the key, right, that you like the underlying asset and the actual investment, who wouldn't want a tax-free super Roth? It's nuts. It's the greatest tax code ever written and nobody gets it. We, We like to say investing into an opportunity zone,
1: it's like coming in like a 1031 and exiting like a Roth.
3: It's a super Roth IRA. I (laughs) like that. I just want to make one quick mention. This is real quick, but I want to dovetail on the 1031. But when we got into the, uh, people that know me in the audience in the industry know that I've been on the 1031 side for 30 years. and, And so I know a little bit about this. And When you look at the 1031, for the longest time, at the very beginning, it was always this 1031 versus opportunity zone, right? And everybody was kind of going down that path, and I didn't really buy into that. But if you look at real estate values, and you look at the sheer volume of exchanges that are going on right now, and the dramatic amount of uncertainty in the marketplace, I'm now starting to get a little bit on board with, hey, you really should be looking at opportunity zones, because... Here's the thing. If you have an exchange, so uh, doctor and Mrs. Smith in uh, where I'm from, Walnut Creek, California, you know, are going to sell their duplex. Now they have two choices in our world. They can either go sell that. Let's say they go to Oakland, California, buy an apartment building and do an exchange and they're still doing, or they can do what most people are now doing, 1031 DSTs. But where are you getting the assets? you're buying into a market that is overinflated. By the way, I'm not saying they're bad deals, but you're looking at generally a market that's inflated. It's at the top of the market. You're in with a group. How long does that sustain? And so I've sort of positioned us to say, look, I'm not against it, and I think you should look at it, but, been, but Opportunity Zone Investing makes a very good outlet for the, if, if this goes away, you have longer to invest, and it gives you that opportunity to go into an opportunity zone. I think it's another arrow in the 1031 exchange quiver, because at the end of the day, it's about protecting the asset. So what if you got out of, got out of paying taxes, but so what if you go into a bad investment? At some point, you have to look at the investment itself versus what your short-term uh, value is by not paying taxes. So that's the only thing I can really add to what these gentlemen
0: are no, that's, that's great. And we're under 10 minutes to go here, and I did want to save a little bit of time for some audience Q&A if anybody had any questions. But first, let me pose my question to all three of you. If you've got a magic wand. You've got a wish list of how you would like opportunity
3: zones to be improved. How would you improve opportunity zones? And
0: Greg, I'll start with
3: you. Sure. I can do this quickly. Even though we've been talking a lot about the 15 and the 10% reduction going away, I think that's the best place to at least start. The fact of the matter is that it just took the government way too long. If you look at the inflows of money that came into Opportunity Zones, at the very beginning, I kiddingly call them the Ceramucci Deals, the big <laughs> private <laughs> equity deals were just sucking money into the deal because they were the groups that were willing to take the risk on
2: what the regs what had. Could be. Stated, huh? What could be, not what it Yeah, could be. exactly, they were
3: willing to take that risk. Then you had the multi-asset and single project deals But when it started to get into where wealth advisors started to get involved, right? Now all of a sudden you have due diligence and that takes some time. You have insurance groups that are getting involved from the standpoint of, are we gonna insure our wealth advisors and our RAs and the BDs? And you didn't have any clear regulation until the end of 2019. So they kind of ran the clock out on everybody. And where in the idea the spirit and intent of the initiative was really made for the average everyday investor, But the Treasury Department put the average everyday investor on its heels at the very beginning for the highest reduction. So I would say if I had a wish list, two things. Obviously, I love this idea of the rolling 15 or the rolling 10 every five years. I think that's wonderful. But I would hope that they would push this out because if they really do care about the average everyday investor protecting their gains, I think that's how you do it. Number two is clear, concise instruction on what they're looking for, because uncertainty just makes everybody
2: sit still and not do anything. Matt, how are you? I would just wish for a $3 billion check, so I could <laughs> go buy it at the port. For us, the irony is the best reserves in the U.S. are in opportunity zones. It's just stupid. The core of the Permian, the five best counties in the U.S. are all op zones. So for me, it would just someone struck me a $5 billion check so I can go buy it from Exxon and Shell and be done. That would that'd be my answer.
0: That's a great one. Eric? Off
2: here. Well,
1: for me, I just want to see clarity from the Biden administration to say, yeah, we like these programs and it's at least going to stay the way that it was before. And if not, uh, we'll extend it and make it a little bit better. I like the program overall, and I think people are somewhat getting their arms around it, especially in the BDRIA space. And opportunity zones are no longer a new thing. Now we're the five o'clock panel on Tuesday, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're here. <laughs> We've arrived. Wow.
0: That, that just said it all mm-hmm. that's a great answer there I'll throw in one suggestion what I'd like to see we've been talking about how the 10% benefit the 15% benefit they don't really move the needle very much what if we made those benefits bigger what if we made them 25% or, or 40% sure. something like that sure. that, uh, might, sure. that might be you you yeah. Jimmy it sounds like a tax break for the rich to me Jimmy yeah. Jimmy,
2: it's really easy it's called fair market value you just update the fair market value and then you have a bigger discount no, that's, that's a good point there. there's an easy way to do that's it that's a good point it's tough to market that though yeah, Like being you don't, don't, you tell people, don't you want to market
0: that. get a 40% that. basis step up after you're like, like waving
2: a red flag to the IRS. Oh,
0: yeah. Hey,
1: we're going to use minority marketability discounts. Look at uh, us. Another thing yeah. I would like, uh, if I had a magic wand, is I'd like everybody to understand what no depreciation recapture means. Yeah. Because explaining awesome. that over and over again is quite a task.
0: That's one of the big hidden benefits of opportunity yeah. zones I like to refer yeah, to as. a point. Well, we've got under five minutes to go. I did want to open it up for some questions. Yes, sir.
1: Just a very simple, quick case study. We had a client that purchased some home was 20 years ago, say 100 grand. It's appreciated to somewhere between two and three million. So he has basically 90, 95% gain. I think what the panelists would say. It's like the ideal case study of who our investors are. 78%? You still have to pay your taxes in 26. And our different programs have different ways of doing refinance events or distributing capital prior to 26 so that the investor can pay their taxes. Of course, nothing is guaranteed. You can read the 80 pages of risk factors in my PPM. But what I can say for our investors, 78% of our investors in our first fund, you know, we raised 131 million. 78% of our investors, the sale of stock was their capital gains event. There's never been like a safe harbor for the sale of stock for folks that don't want to have to pay taxes like 1031s in
2: real estate. So it's absolutely made for them. So but his question was that... Yeah, so let me repeat his question so everyone hears it. His question is a client who has a very large disparity between basis and value. So in his example, it was a $100,000 basis, a $3 million value. And then he's obviously older. He's held it for 20 years. We're going to assume he's older. So what he's worried about is that okay, one, he's going to have a tax bill in 2026, and two, he's worried about he would get a step up if he dies, unless Biden gets what he wants and gets rid of the step up when he dies. But the, is he giving up too much to get that? And the answer is always very simple. It's, you don't know the future, right? You don't know what's going to happen with this administration or next on a step-up basis or where a state tax falls at $10 million or at a million. Nobody knows what's going to happen from that perspective. To me, it's never a holistic answer. It's a – there's probably a partial solution where an op-zone works – in a component, right? It's almost like an installment sale. You're selling a piece of it now. You're gonna defer that piece until 2026. Some of the programs will have debt refinance distributions. We provide the cash flow during the life cycle that you'll have more than you need for the tax bill in just cash flow. You don't even need to have anything else. So there's just all kinds of answers. Would you sell 100% of Home Depot and put it in oil and gas? No, nuts, like period. Sorry. Yes. Yes, you should. No, so you're never going to get to your three billion with an answer like that. Yeah. Right? Exactly. I'm. I'm not. But so yeah, I think the answer is: it's a parcel. It's a great tax planning, right? You're trying to move money into the tax-free, tax-deferred, all these different buckets. Yes, you're worried a little bit about the step-up loss, but you're not asking for all three million bucks, right? Is it better if you did a short-term gain? Of course. Is it better if you did recapture? Of course, because you know you're at higher tax rates. So then you're kicking that off for six years at thirty-six percent. So, of course, it's gonna be a little bit more, it's easy to say you're not gonna pay much more, even if rates went up, we're gonna go from 36.9 to 30, 39, it's not a big deal. And I'm just gonna add one quick thing so we get to
3: another question, but I think this is important to think about as well. We talk in terms of, you can't do anything with this money for 10 years. So when you're looking at this, I think you have to look at the program. So if I were in that situation, with what little we know, low basis, huge amount of gain. You need to look at these programs and say, let's say you put it into seven single project deals. You need to really evaluate when is there liquid. It's all about the liquidity. And then if he passes away at that time. I mean, the lights are really in our eyes, so I can't really see you. I just know you're over there. I see a silhouette. So what does that liquidity look like? You might be in seven different opportunity zone deals. And in year three, year three two of them will refi and you'll get... Uh, money take it out in year 4, let's say 3 or whatever the case may be. So you have to look at it from a judging standpoint. Is he, What's the likelihood of, it, of him getting enough capital out to pay those taxes? So what, I don't know, you could have another 6 million in the bank. The other thing to, to think about is, the, and this is really strange because people don't really talk about it, what is the liquidity of the Opportunity Zone fund during the 10 years? A lot of people don't talk about that because we're always like, you have to hold it for 10 years. But there, there, a case can be made that a fund can and should have a stout liquidity provision during the 10 years, even though, because we do have investors that may say in year five, yeah. death, we call it, you know, the two Ds, death or divorce a lot of times, they have to get that cash out. And so you want to make sure, in my opinion, have a liquidity provision, even though it triggers their capital gains tax. From a financial planning standpoint, that could make a lot of sense. So I look at it from a performance standpoint, a liquidity standpoint, and then a liquidity provision standpoint, in my opinion. Yeah, just in case Trump's reelected elected and
2: moves capital gains to zero. So but you don't want to be totally
3: locked up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, we've run out of time. If you do have any other questions, come up and just talk to us. We won't bite. We'll hang around for a few more minutes. But wanted to make sure everyone else, head on over to the cocktail hour, and we'll see you there. Thank you very much. And thanks to our panelists. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.